Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. In the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians, he is speaking to them about what it means really to be a Christian. You have been raised to life with Christ, so set your hearts on the things that are in heaven, where Christ sits on his throne at the right side of God. Keep your minds fixed on things there, not on things here on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your real life is Christ. And when he appears, then you too will appear with him and share his glory. You must put to death, then, the earthly desires that work in you, such as sexual immorality, indecency, lust, evil passions, and greed, for greed is a form of idolatry. Because of such things, God's anger will come upon those who do not obey him. At one time, you yourselves used to live according to such desires when your life was dominated by them. But now you must get rid of all these things, anger, passion, and hateful feeling. No insults or obscene talk must ever come from your lips. Do not lie to one another, for you have put off the old self with its habits and have put on the new self. This is the new being which God, its creator, is constantly renewing in his own image in order to bring you to a full knowledge of himself. As a result, There is no longer any distinction between Gentiles and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, savages, slaves, and free men. But Christ is all. Christ is in all. You are the people of God. He loved you and chose you for his own. So then you must clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with one another and forgive one another whenever any of you has a complaint against someone else. You must forgive one another just as the Lord has forgiven you. And to all these qualities add love, which binds all things together in perfect unity. The peace that Christ gives is to guide you in the decisions you make. For it is to this peace that God has called you together in the one body. And be thankful. Christ's message in all its richness must live in your heart. Teach and instruct one another with all wisdom. Sing psalms, hymns, and sacred songs. Sing to God with thanksgiving in your heart. Everything you do or say, then, should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus as you give thanks through him to God the Father. You will notice in the psalm that the psalm, as you obviously have found in your own personal study of it, is broken into three sections. The first is one in which the psalmist speaks about the glory of God revealed in the natural world about us. And to illustrate what he wants to say, he uses the heavens as the example. When you study the Old Testament, if you read it very much, you will remember that when the heavens are spoken of, they usually are linked with the fact that the Lord is the maker of the heavens and the earth. 
And the heavens are preeminently a place where his sovereignty is unbrooked or unquestioned or unchallenged. How clearly the sky reveals God's glory. How plainly it shows what he has done. And then the psalmist goes ahead and speaks about how every part of the heavens follows the divine pattern to perfection. There is no disobedience. There is no unbelief. And there is no challenge to him anywhere. Now when he comes to the second section of the psalm, beginning with verse 7, the background for which he is speaking is radically different. He is talking about the world below the heavens where his law has been given, the Torah, the law of Moses, the word of Scripture has been given. And as he goes to speak here, he speaks about perfection in that realm. But the perfection is not in the realm of obedience. The perfection is not in the realm of unerring following of the ways of its maker. But the perfection rather is in the order that is given to the creatures that are in that realm and is in the order that they should follow, but so often we do not. Because in the second section, you have a a second element introduced, and that is the element of human freedom, the element of human ability to challenge the maker. And so he does not say that this is a place where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. He says this is the place where his will ought to be done, And thanks be unto God where his will has been disclosed, though it is not done. The heavens is a place where the petition of the Lord's Prayer is already fulfilled. The earth is a place where it is yet to be fulfilled. And so he speaks, rather than of the sovereign control of God, he speaks of the sovereign will of God. And so he says the law of the Lord is perfect. It gives new strength when men heed it. The commands of the Lord are trustworthy, giving wisdom to those who lack it. The laws of the Lord are right, and those who obey them are happy. The commands of the Lord are just, and give understanding to the mind. The worship of the Lord is good, it will continue forever. The judgments of the Lord are just, they are always fair. More desirable than the finest gold, sweeter than the purest honey. They give knowledge to me, your servant. I am rewarded when I obey them. But you will notice there is that possibility of disobedience. God's will in this world is not yet in complete control. But his work is accomplished by people who are ready to submit themselves to that. So the psalmist uh, having seen the glory of God, where his will is unchallenged, and having seen the will of God and its glory in an area where it is challenged, he says, how can I get to the place where I don't challenge his will, but where I do his will, and where my inner life becomes uh, a place of the sovereign will of God being accomplished. You will notice the conclusion of the psalm. Let the words of my mouth, and the meditations, the thoughts of my heart be acceptable to you. O God, my refuge and my redeemer. So you see, this is what he's after. He is saying, yes, there is a place where your will is perfectly done. It should be done here, but it isn't. I would like to be among that group 
where your will is perfectly done within me. Now, it's significant to me how he defines it. He defines it in terms of his words and in terms of his thoughts or meditations. I think there is some value in the King James original text here. Uh, when it speaks about the meditations, let the meditations of my heart, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, because you and I live in a world where all of our thoughts are not self-originated. And so he does not say, I do not think he is trying to say, bring me to the place where a thought that is alien to you will never come. Because that would be asking to be placed beyond the pale of temptation. Because it is through our thoughts that temptation comes. And so he is saying something better. Let the words of my mouth, I do choose whether I say them or not. My will is involved there. And the meditations are the deliberate thoughts of my heart. Let those be acceptable to you, O Lord my refuge, my strength, and my redeemer. I'm going to need his strength, if that's true, and I'm going to need his redemptive power, if that's true. Because you think what perfection it would be if the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart were always pleasing to him. Now, I think there is a correspondence between this and what was read a few moments ago in the book of Colossians, where Paul speaks and says, everything you do or say, then, should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, as you give thanks through him to God the Father. Now, uh, here is where the psalmist wanted to live, and here is where Paul says that we ought to live, where our lives are acceptable in his sight. But now there's a problem. I think there are two things that are problems. One of them is the waywardness of our own will. And if you'll look at the preceding two verses, let me read you this translation, which is a uh, not a direct translation, as you know, the uh, Good News Bible, but it says fairly well, I think, what, what is intended here. No one can see his own errors. Now put that in the context of what we have said. There is a place where the will of God is done perfectly. Our domain is a place where it ought to be, but is not. I would like to be part of that body of people in whom his will is accomplished. What's the problem? No one can see his own errors. Deliver me, O Lord, from hidden faults. It is possible for us not to know when we displease him. Keep me safe also from willful sin. Don't let them rule over me. Then I shall be perfect and free from the evil of sin. It's an interesting translation, isn't it? It's spoken in terms of concepts that I think we would find some compatibility with. If I can be delivered from my errors that I do not see, and if I can be delivered from my hidden faults, and if I am kept from willful sin so they do not rule over me, 
Then I shall be perfect in his sight, acceptable in his sight, and I shall be free from the evil of sin. Now, there are two elements you will notice. One of them is what the Hebrew speaks of as presumptuous sin, or sin with a high hand, sin with a deliberate intent, where I consciously choose counter to the will of God. Now, the scripture says there's no sacrifice for that kind of sin. When I sin with eye hand, when I sin deliberately, when I sin intentionally, there is no sacrifice for it. Because it is something that I have chosen and the guilt that goes with it, I take. Now, if there is repentance, then there can be a sacrifice for that sin because there will be a turning from it. But that is the characteristic of a man who has not yet been regenerated. Now let me link that with Colossians 3. Colossians 3 begins saying, If ye then be risen with Christ. He's speaking about people who have been resurrected with Christ. There's been a crucifixion of the ego. There has been a resurrection with him. A crucifixion of self-will. So that, as he says, Do not walk the way the world walks the way you used to walk. And then he describes an area of conscious, willful sin. So I think the two passages link together. But then, if you have reached the place where you are not living in conscious, deliberate sin, what about hidden faults? And what about the errors that we cannot see? When a man comes to Christ and begins to live with him, then he begins to find that in conversion he has found forgiveness. And in regeneration he has found a passionate love for God. Delightful to hear Marisa. I don't know about you, but I found my own heart exulting in that and remembering. Remembering also the word in Peter where Peter speaks about people who have forgotten that they have been purged from their sins. Some of us that get older sometimes forget we not only forget the joy, but we forget what he has done for us. But nevertheless, here are people who have been resurrected. When we are resurrected with him, what do we find? We begin to find something of the deviosity of our own nature. We begin to find how complicated the human ego really is and how profoundly we have been affected by the fall. How Deeply, our inner responsiveness to him and to truth and to right and to holiness, how deeply that responsiveness has been blunted and been damaged. And I think the psalmist was uh, dealing with that when he says, Lord, no man can see his own errors. He says, uh, deliver me from those hidden faults. Now, the objective, so that my words which come out of that inner being and my thoughts which are chosen by that inner being will be acceptable in his sight. Our Lord, who is our strength and our redeemer. Now, how does he get us to the place where uh, we see our hidden faults and we see our errors that no man can see of himself? You know, I've become convinced that his best means and I love the way in Scripture there's always a mixture of natural and supernatural. 
We separate the two and define them out, but he never separates them. He helps us to identify the difference. What man does is not what God does, and what God does is not what man does, but you notice so many of the miracles of Jesus. There would have been no wine if the fellow had not gone and gotten the water pots filled. There would have been no sight for the man if he had not washed the mud from his eyes. And you can go through that. There is that mixture of the natural and the supernatural, and how right that is. All of grace, but he uses human means. You know, I think that's the reason that he has forced people to live in community. And that's the point at which you and I are God's gifts to each other. Because it is basically in the interaction with other people that we find out who we are and we see ourselves. I wish I had probed through it far enough and uh, had enough insight to uh, say it as well as uh, I'd like to be able to say it. You know, God is the only self-explanatory being. All the rest of us find our identity ultimately outside of ourselves. I'm in trouble here psychologically until you get Lee Fisher to straighten out the wording of this. But uh, we're creatures. We're finite. And to be finite means that we are not an end in ourselves. Our identity is something chosen, not discovered. And so we choose whom to be. But then when we choose, how do we find that we are in conformity with it? Because it is so easy to delude ourselves. It's been fascinating to me how difficult it is to run away from people. And most of my life, I would have liked to have. I uh, grew up, uh, I walked the back streets to keep bumping into people because I didn't want to have to speak to them. I didn't want to be involved because I found interaction with people was painful. And you know, I've never found it anything else since. There is a certain amount of pain that comes with interaction with human beings. But isn't it interesting? There's no escape. I remember E. Stanley Jones' story about uh, the monk who went back up in the Nile. And when I was at Brandeis, we read in Coptic a bunch of the, the sayings of the Coptic fathers. These were predominantly men, eremitic monks, who went back up the Nile and lived in caves alone. And the longer they lived in absolute aloneness, why, the holier they were supposed to be. And so there was one who was one of the more holy of the holy ones who had uh, sealed himself in a cave and didn't come out for years. Now, how he lived, apparently people came and slid food into him, this kind of thing. It's interesting is that he couldn't even get away from that contact. Simeon Stalites on the top of his pillar had to have somebody come and get food up to him. There is no way that you and I can ever get to the place where we are independent. It is an illusion. God has made us dependent. It's our nature. We're in a position where we can never get beyond receiving. 
Now, we can get beyond taking. That's a spiritual differentiation. But we cannot get beyond receiving. And we are made to give. It's the nature of our existence. But E. Stanley Jones told the story of one of those monks in the Nile that uh, somebody came and chased him out and said, how are you doing in your pie, in your suit, pursuit of it? He said, I'm doing great. I haven't thought of a woman in 24 years. And E. Stanley Jones said, isn't that interesting? His first thought in human contact was to deny that he had thought about the thing that was the first thing that came to his mind when he met another human being. Uh, and it is an illusion, if we think, that we can escape from this. I remember hearing Stanley Jones, it may have been in that passage, where, or in that uh, sermon, or in that book, when he was treating of the fact there are three basic herds. Self, protection of one's own life. Self, sex, and the herd. And you think of how powerful these things are. There are a few people who try to get away, but I have a suspicion that one of the prime motivations among those monks up in the Nile was so that the people down in Cairo would talk about them, how holy they were. I may be wrong, but knowing my heart and knowing a lot of other people's hearts, I expect there was an element of that in it. We're egregious. We're social creatures, aren't we? How can you explain the mystery of the sex drive? As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing in human experience more profound and greater than that except for the hunger for God and the hunger for, for ultimate reality. And uh, uh, these are built into us. We seek out other people even though we know they're going to hurt us. You talk to these boys on campus, why they don't date, and what will they tell you? They'll tell you almost every time, if they're honest, I'm scared she'll say no. Now, it's not a one of them who's natural, who doesn't anticipate joy in companionship with somebody of the opposite sex. Why do they stay in the dorms on Saturday night? They're afraid to make that overture lest they be hurt. And I think that's a characteristic of life. So God has had to build into us the necessity of each other or we would have gone off on a farm. But now we can't, and why? Because you have something I need, and I have something, whether I know it or not, apart from any credit to me, that apparently you need. We are made for each other. Because here it is that we really learn who we are and what our needs are. How's a man going to find out what his hidden faults are? Get married. It's a royal road to self-knowledge. And there two of the two greatest teachers in my life have been the Holy Ghost. And interestingly enough, the word for spirit in the Hebrew is feminine. And elder. Uh, she uh, teaches me things about me. She tells me things about me that nobody else has ever suggested. And I'm sure... Some of those things nobody else would ever dare to suggest out of human respect and out of human compassion. It's not beyond suggestion. Any preacher know, who's married knows that one of the most painful things in the world is to come on Sunday noon and sit across the table from his wife. Uh, it's bad enough to shake hands with the, with the church members at the door 
but they have certain inhibitions built in by human culture. If they're white, that's a different story. There she sits, and you have to face it. Now, uh, the other side of that is, I do not know of anything more painful than being the wife of a preacher and being sitting in the congregation and not one blooming thing that wife can do when he falls flat on his face. Because she can't prepare his sermon for him normally, and if he's failed to do it, get it done, and done right, she is as exposed as he is, and she suffers the same ego humiliation that he suffers, and maybe more. And I notice that one of our preacher's wives in the crowd is not in bed that way. Uh, it's interesting. We cannot escape from this, and I think there is a divine wisdom in it. You think for a moment about the family, the church, the school, your job, and your other associations. How many doorways into you God has built that you can't keep locked. And so, he has that opportunity to get to us, to show us our hidden errors and our secret faults. The things that are not in conformity with his perfect will. So I've decided that there are two sanctifying powers or instruments in human life. One of them is the cross of Christ and the atonement of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us on the basis of it. And the other is human association. And I think there is no question but that you are a sanctifying influence in my life, which God uses, wants to use. It will either make me a person who is more like Christ and is more characterized by love, or it will make me a person who is more characterized by the opposite of that. Withdrawal and self-interest. You know, uh, was it three years ago we had Peter Lord speak, and we came for the new people. Let me share it and for the old people, just the older, those of us who didn't, were here, let me remind you. Peter Lord is a Southern Baptist preacher who had a son and daughter at Asbury, and we invited him to come for our faculty retreat. And on the last session, he just put us in Hughes Auditorium, and he came in with a, a cup, plastic cup, half full of water. And he, uh, Said he, I watched him as he carried it around while we were getting the final details of the service set up, and I wondered what he was going to do with it. And he finally set it on the altar and said, Would it be all right if I set this here? And I said, Yes. Uh, so he got into his message and he asked for the wife of a young faculty member sitting on the front row if he'd come help him. And so he held that glass in his left hand and he said, Now place both of your hands on my arm. And then he said, uh, after she did, he said, now hold tight. And she squeezed, and he said, now shake, and shake hard. And you remember, she shook, and water flew everywhere. And she stood there wondering what the meaning of all this was. Uh, he said, uh, I wonder why it spilled water. And she blinked, you know, and thought there must be some catch somewhere. And he said, no, I wonder why it spilled water. Finally, she said, because there was water in it. He said, how profound. Then he said this. He said, you know, you find somebody that irritates you, and you say, he irritates me. He said, now 
doesn't irritate you. He simply sloshes out the irritation that was already there. You look at a woman and say, she made me lust. He said, no, the reality is right, but the expression is wrong. She just simply sloshed out what was already there. He said, you see, these people that are around you are God's special gift to you to let you know who you are. And also to know what you need. Now, uh, that's been a help to me ever since he did that. And it's caused me to begin to look at people in a different way. Because the person who's most painful to me may be the person who's God's richest gift to me. But that's become a very precious truth to me now. And it's made me look at people in a different way. And it's made me look at myself in a different way. It's made me raise the question, do I have the grace and the courage to expose myself so that God can make a better person out of me? Because I like to hide. I don't like for you to hurt me. I don't like to be stabbed and I don't like pain. But I also would like for the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in his sight. I would like to be, as he said in the psalm, I'd like to be perfect in his eyes. I'm not going to be in yours. (laughs) But I'd like to be perfect in his. And it's in that area that that issue is determined. I'd like to be in a place where everything that I do or say is done in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. And if I'm doing things that aren't in his name and that aren't for his glory, how am I going to find out? You're God's gift to me. And I must face you that way. You know, uh, in this passage in Colossians, look at what he says. Now, he's talking to believers. He's talking to the Colossian church. He's talking to people who have paid a price for their faith. They've separated themselves from a pagan world. Many of them have paid an, an extremely high price for their Christian faith. And now he says this. But now, you must get rid of all these things. Anger. Did you ever get angry alone? If you did, how often? Very seldom we get angry alone. It's usually in the tension of rubbing with other people. Passion. The greatest producer of that is social contact. Uh, Hateful feelings. Kind of feelings that you're not proud of after you've had them. You especially wouldn't be proud if Jesus was immediately present. What is it that produces that? It is almost without exception human relations, isn't it? He says, now put off these. No insults or obscene talk must ever come from your lips. Your language, let the words of my mouth 
you see, be acceptable in his sight. Do not lie to one another. You know, you'll never know how to, whether you're deceitful or not until whether you told the truth would be embarrassing or not. But when you get to that place where if you tell the truth, you're going to be humiliated, and if you cover, you'll be protected. It's in human relations that we find out the deceitfulness of the human heart. Do not lie to one another, for you have put off the old self with its habits, and you have put on the new self. This is the new being which God, its creator, is constantly renewing in his own image in order to bring you where? Listen. To a full knowledge of himself. Why do I need to know myself? That's the only way I'll really know him. Because it's when I find the extent of my need that I find the fullness of his provision. And what is provision? His provision is himself. Paul said that his prayer was that he might know him. But in this passage he says, if I'm to know him, I must first of all know myself, my hidden faults, my secret sins the places where I come short of his glory. As a result, there's no difference between us. We're all equal. And the king has the same problem that the pauper has when it comes to this. may come in a little different form, but basically they're the same. And we're all in equal need of him. As a result, there is no distinction, but Christ is all, Christ is in all. You remember the words of the hymn. You are the people of God. He loved you and chose you for his own. So then, you must clothe yourselves with compassion. And how can you clothe yourself with compassion if you never have the temptation to be uncompassionate? And other human people are your opportunity to become compassionate. Clothe yourself with kindness. And you're going to have difficulty clothing yourself with kindness if you don't bump into unkind people. At least people where you can return kindness. Clothe yourself with humility. Clothe yourself with gentleness. Clothe yourself with patience. Be tolerant with each other. And forgive one another whenever any of you has a complaint against someone else. You must forgive one another just as the Lord has forgiven you. And to all these qualities add love, which puts everything together in perfect unity. And that's something wrought in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Because if my heart is full of perfect love, his love, then where I normally would be angry, 
I will not be angry. Where I normally would be lustful, I will be pure. You can keep on going down the line. And I will be compassionate, I will be kind, I will be humble, I will be gentle, I will be patient, and I will be tolerant. Now, uh, it would be a great tragedy if we did not see the educational role of our common life. And it would be throwing away a priceless asset if we did not consciously take it as a means of God's accomplishing his intended ends in our midst. Now, we talk about this in terms of student life. And in speaking to the parents of the freshmen and the new students on Thursday night of last week, one of the week before last, One of the things I said was, it's what you learn unconsciously that's most important, and that's done in living with people. May God help us to see that opportunity not only for our students, but may God help us to see it with each other. I think it will do two or three things for us. One of them is, we will treat each other with respect. And the person you're most tempted to be disrespectful to or to push out of your life or to shut out of your personal relationship, you will say, wait a minute. First, is there something in this that God has to say to me? We will look upon our problems as a gift God gives to us. That doesn't mean that we ignore the problems that the other person may have. Uh, God may lead us. We perhaps need more honesty in speaking to each other about these things. But it means we will begin not pointing at the other person, but we will begin by saying, God, what are you saying to me? We will actually believe that God is actively at work in the life of the person who bothers us the most. And that God's interested in perfecting him the same way he's interested in perfecting you. Where did I read recently about the fellow who finally decided, yes, Christ died for the whole world, and that many loved even his neighbors, and because of that he decided he just couldn't afford to be a Christian. Because if God loved his neighbors, he couldn't afford to have too much to do with God. Now, uh, God's at work in the heart of the person who troubles me the most. What's he trying to do there? Shall I hinder what he's doing, or shall I be a part of that other person's help? It'll bring us all to the place where, what's that sign, that uh, car, uh, that uh, pin that used to appear occasionally? I never could remember it, but I think it was B-P-G-I-N-T-W-M-Y. Be patient. God isn't through with me yet. Well, he isn't through with any of us. You say, well, doesn't entire sanctification take care of all that? It takes care of the heart, but it doesn't take care of the badly formed personality traits that characterize all of us and that need correction. And there is a sanctification that takes place after the sanctification of the heart, where God uses us with each other to bring us into more perfect conformity to the image of Christ. And we should be grateful.
the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in his sight. The one who is our God, our strength, and our redeemer. That whatever we do in word or deed, we shall do it in the name of Christ, and we shall do it to the glory of Christ. I think it's there that we first sense in these kind of relationships that need for the heart, cleansing of the heart. That, uh, and then with that heart clean, then we are prepared to accept, without resentment, the correction and the chastening that comes, and the, uh, the, the transformation into his image that is possible in some of the still painful experiences of human relations as we live together. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. Our Father, we bow to worship. The desire of our heart is that we may know thee in all of thy fullness. But to know thee in all of thy fullness, we must know ourselves in all of our needs. So give us a receptivity, a willingness to receive that knowledge. And Lord, give us the grace not to run from the one who hurts, whose very hurt may be part of our salvation. And grant that somehow in our midst there may be that consciousness of mutual need and mutual acceptance. And we shall give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.